This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This is Episode 4 in our series based on The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a futuristic novel. Tonight we'll explore the idea of habitat corridors. It's already happening here and round the world to restore land for wild animals and plants. The carbon drawdown of these protected corridors is becoming more attractive to farmers and we'll hear about the Yarra Yarra Biodiversity Corridor in Western Australia, which is promoted by a group called Carbon Neutral. Also, we'll hear three scientists, Professor James Watson, telling us about conservation corridors around the world, Amy Kamarainen in Canada, talking about the Great Marine Heatwave recently in British Columbia, and Dr. Salimul Huck commenting on the new IPCC report and what Bangladesh can teach Germany. He's speaking on democracy now, and I just edited a small grab from that to keep you up to date. So here's an edited reading of Chapter 72 on wildlife corridors from the Ministry for the Future. The habitat corridor idea was just one early move in the larger half-Earth project. But first things first. With wild animals critically endangered everywhere, it was necessary to do what we could right now, without delay. And habitat corridors had an already existing tradition of methodologies and legal instruments already worked up. The famous corridor Yukon to Yellowstone was going great. Not that this was the hardest corridor on earth to establish, the Canadian Rockies being almost empty down their spine and including a lot of federal and tribal land protected as parks and the like. They were on both sides of the border. Not to mention including two of the great remaining ecosystem populations with the greater Yellowstone ecosystem animals prospering at the south end and the Arctic ecosystem animals doing fairly well in the north, if you didn't count climate change melting their land or ice out from under them. Both populations might start migrating to the middle, but the corridor allowed them to do that. And both ecozones had relatively healthy populations of mammals and birds, in that they were not too poisoned and big in number and geographical extent. As proof of concept, Yukon to Yellowstone had done wonders for showing people how it all could work. Animals had free passage up and down it and protection from hunting. Roads still active in the region had been given under and overpasses. Fences had breaks in them or were torn down entirely. Millions of animals were tagged and thus 
now participated in the so-called Internet of Animals, which is basically a gigantic suite of scientific studies. It was not far from true that we had a better census going with the mammals and birds in the Yukon to Yellowstone corridor than we did for the humans in it. So lots of people being paid to stay there paid for motion-sensitive night photos of animals, for example. They'd send them to us like bounties in the old days, but reversed, people being paid for keeping them alive rather than killing them. People were talking about a Yukon to Tierra del Fuego corridor, just following the great line that forms the spine of both Americas. Most of the Latin American countries already were doing things like this and Ecuador and Costa Rica had been leaders all along. It could happen. First money, significant applications of money, then persuasion. Hedgerows often saved soil. They built soil. They were considered worth the land they took. Native plant strips the same. No-till ag the same. Habitat corridors had to be seen first as an extension of that kind of agriculture, done to increase soil building and soil resilience. So wide hedgerows were the wedge for this topic, the least objectionable innovation. And then the idea of wild animals had to be brought in as a kind of pest control device. Of course, those who grazed domestic animals were not pleased, but since the mad cow disease scare in the previous decade, with its subsequent collapse of beef demand, there were simply far fewer domestic beasts out there to worry about. Hogs were enclosed, chickens were enclosed, and those supposedly terrible wolves were now mostly eating tick-infested, crop-eating deer. It was the deer who were the pests, deer who devastated crops. It was a matter of crop protection to have wild predators on the land. And you could even hunt them later on, if some culling was found necessary. So we could persuade people to have wolves back. And to tell the truth, the upper Midwest and the states west of that, well, the way to Seattle, they were hurting bad. They were emptying out anyway. People could make more money ranching buffalo and tending to wildlife sanctuaries than they could by farming. Those upper plains were never meant to be farmed and people had learned that the hard way, right from the start. Now all the young people were taking off and never coming back. So what would make them stay? Wildlife protection. Especially when you could make a good living at it. Better than the debt-ridden, drought-stricken, winter-blasted, poisonous, hard-scrabble farming that people had been attempting for the previous two centuries. All that effort had gone got them nothing but a dust bowl and mounting debt, and kids moving away, and early death. A category error from the start, an ecological illiteracy. Time for a change. In the novel, there are several references to E.O. Wilson, whose book Half Earth showed how rewilding half the world and creating biodiversity corridors would have a positive effect in the deranged climate that we are now seeing in force. 
I wanted to know where this habitat restoration is actually happening. James Watson headed the Wildlife Conservancy Society's climate program. Welcome, James. Look, I want you to take us first to Central America, where five great forests are being restored by, among others, the Wildlife Conservation Society. And I'd like you to tell us why this area from Mexico to Colombia is so valuable. What's happening there? Yeah, look, these forests in Mesoamerica are one of the last intact forests you find in the Americas. Uh, They're home to special animals such as jaguars and and, and endemic birds, um, reptiles, and they're getting uh, decimated by land clearing, by cattle farmers in particular, and also um, through other agricultural activity associated weirdly with with things like drug smuggling. Um, you know, there's, but there's been a kind of a high incidence of deforestation relationships with things like road development to try and get oh. drug movement up and down north and, you know, north and south. So, yeah, so protection is really key. Um, and at groups like the Wildlife Conservation Society are playing a really big role in terms of conserving these areas. What are they doing? Well, it depends on each nation, um, but they're working with local local communities um, to actually set up community uh, conservation areas. It depends on which location. You know, what we see in Guatemala and Costa Rica is um, really hands-on local community um, work. So uh, that means uh, trying to get funding uh, to uh, local communities to safeguard these these forests and also to try and get some restoration between these forests, lots of restoration to create some corridors so animals can move about and not just be captured inside the pockets of forests that are remaining. Well, they're very dangerous countries. I mean, I belong to Amnesty as well, and you hear about environmental protectors being assassinated or murdered terrible and there's people flowing out of there um, migrants flowing out of those countries because life is so dangerous there are you paying people to stay and manage the forests or how how is that working Oh, no, no. It's, it's, no. So there's people um, who work for WCS inside the country. So they're locals working there, um, you know, and it's, and it's um, you know, so the country officers running these programs. Yeah, but they are, you know, these places are terribly dangerous. In fact, you know, it's one of those sad things in that one, some of the most biodiverse places in the, country, in the world are the most dangerous and they are, the, you know, the most with the poorest communities in them. So that makes conservation particularly tough um, and that's why, Working with local communities and trying to get sustainable livelihoods going in these communities um, is really the only way to get long-term conservation outcomes. Are you hopeful for this project? Five great forests joined up. I think it's ambitious, absolutely. You know, like any, like any, like any project. You know, like it's going to take a long, long time, and it's going to take, um, you know, a lot of funding. But um, yeah, I think I think you need to think big and dream big to try and get these kind of great outcomes. I think I'm pretty confident it'll happen. Just um, this may take a while. Yeah, well, there's a map in one of your articles on the conversation that shows how much land there is, you know, and you have it in three categories. One is just cities and farmlands, and then there's wild, you know, wilderness. But there's another great big area in every country in the world called shared land. I'd like you to tell us about, there's one there I thought was interesting, the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative in the USA, and the other one is the Lewa conservancy in um kenya yeah look so those i mean yeah so you can that's just breaking up the world you know you can actually map the world in any way any way you want but if you're really a really simple way of looking at it is just breaking up the world in the three different um realms so you've got these kind of large intact landscapes wildlands you've got these highly populated landscapes the cities and, and villages that people live in 
and you've got these kind of um, these landscapes which have farms and mining um, and, you know, and lower population densities, these kind of shared landscapes. And obviously conservation um, needs to happen across all three uh, different realms. Um, and But given the fact that most of the world sits in that middle realm, that's where conservation has to happen. We've got to manage the middle, and that's that's what we're trying to do in um, you know in terms of many of these places. So the Yellowstone to Yukon effort is trying to manage those landscapes that are farming landscapes uh, in North America that are gas fields that are road. You know, there's lots of infrastructure there, but they're really important landscapes for wolves and for grizzly bears, wolverines for wildlife for birds. So we're trying to work in that kind of shared landscape to get the best outcome, not just for biodiversity, but for people as well. And the same as Kenya, that's where you have to get agricultural productivity at the same time as you get biodiversity benefits. So that's what we're trying to do there is trying to yeah get the best out of that middle bit because that's how, that's how we're really going to win conservation in the long term. Well, I interviewed someone from the Lewa Conservancy once and he said well, something I remember, to keep the elephants and rhinos out of the farmlands, they had these sort of fences of bees, you know, beehives, and this would just sort of irritate the wild animals and kept the farms safe. So I think there's a lot of creativity going into farmers and wildlife living together. But how... Um, tell us a bit more about that. You know, is it joining up? Do you join up landscapes so that animals can um, migrate, you know, so that they're not going to be knocked out on highways or, you know, do you make, how do you make corridors like that? Oh, look, I think it depends on country, each country. Um, but what, what happens in the United States is, you know, it's obviously voluntary. So you've got to, you've got to find a landholder who want to do this. Often you have to find the corridors which actually make, the most sense from the landholder point of view. So they're not often optimum for wildlife. But once you get one or two landholders onto it, they often convince others and you start to get this kind of network of people really wanting to work together and, kept, you know, create a corridor. And the mm. thing about corridors is people see them. They actually physically can see them being developed and they want to be part of it. Now, what often happens in these landscapes is once the corridor's there, species will use it, you know, because... It provides some kind of shelter from you know, the anthropogenic surroundings. So that's the, the reason why you do the corridors. Can you describe one to us, you know, some place where it's been particularly successful? I've seen things like underpasses under highways or overpasses or breaks in fences where wildlife can go yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's very famous corridors around the world. I mean, there's some corridors in, in the Albertine Rift in East Africa connecting great national parks in Uganda. They're massively long and actually connect places up. Um, in Australia, the Great Eastern Ranges, you know, is a continuous corridor all the way from Melbourne all the way up to Cape York. And, and there's been efforts in place there to try and connect them via restoration all the way up that, you know, that coast to keep that corridor going. So in, in, in a really good one, a famous one in Australia is Gondwana Link in Western Australia, where they're trying to connect the Fitzsterling, Fitzgerald National Park and the Sterling Ranges National Park. There's a lot of farmland in between and there's a really beautiful effort over there to try and connect them via restoration. So that's really worth Googling and looking at, you know, um, it's called Gondwana Link yeah. and that's, yeah, that's, that's world-renowned. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, yeah, so yeah, there's many, many of them and they, you know, um, as I say, what happens is um, a lot of people get behind them 
once they start because they can see they're making a difference. Every local person, local landholder can actually contribute. I think this thing about landholders, how they can contribute is interesting. And, you know, I'm doing all these programs based on that novel by Kim Stanley Robinson. It just took my fancy because all the climate solutions seem to be tried out in that novel. It gives you imaginatively all in one place an idea. But much of the science that is reported in the news maps habitat loss, species lost, you know, it's an absolute tragedy going on. And in but in the novel there's a moment where there's a change of heart or change of attitude and the farmers can earn money by building soil resilience, restoring trees, introducing wild animals and tending wildlife sanctuaries. There's more money than that than the farming they used to do. And of course there's the conflict always with logging and deforesting, as you said, in Central America. But what do you think would throw the switch so that this will become far more widespread? I think there's I think there's a few things. One is, yeah, you're right. Get rewarding. There are farmers who do the right thing, and I think we should reward reward them and celebrate them. But I think the other side of the coin is I still think we've got to hold the farmers who don't do the right thing to account. I mean, and that's unfortunately the majority of, of farmers and miners. You know, they, they do destroy nature. They break the law in Australia. You know, the, the illegal land clearing in Australia is immense. And I think one thing that we have to remember is most of the land is leasehold. It's not even owned by people. It's leased. It's Commonwealth land that the farmers feel like that it's theirs, but it's actually not theirs. It's actually all of Australia's. It's every Australian owns a bit of that land, and I think it should be treated with a bit more respect. Um, the one thing is, you know, reward the good behaviour and, you know, really punish the bad behaviour, I think, and let's get get some perspective about what farming is in Australia and realise that not, not farmers aren't sacred. You know, they are, they are just one part of the economy and, and, and you know, and, and, and land management's critical for climate change, biodiversity conservation, ecosystem service provision. So that's one element that we've got to get right. I think the other, other element is a lot of these people just don't even think about the consequences they're, they're making when they, when they make land management decisions that, you know, are going to destroy the earth, you know, and I think, that kind of um, awakening by actually thinking about what thinking through the eyes of their cho- children or grandchildren may wake them up a bit. And only when that happens, I think, will assess that change. Um, you know, it's only when when people actually start thinking through the the yeah the eyes of the you know the intergenerational change that's going to happen. Well, I think one of the organisations has wanted intergenerational funding so that we don't have this piecemeal funding that's from one one particular government to another. It's you know, intergenerational, long-term funding. I think I, I really think, you know, I, I, I genuinely think from an Australian point of view, our issue is um, how we think about the democracy and how we vote. I think right now we just never, we always think about the short term, about the immediate gain. And until we, we shift our thinking around the long term, I can't see a way out of this because unless we can motivate people out of greed, you know, it just... And even, you know, vaccinations, you know, today we, we said the Labor Party saying the only way we can get people vaccinated, which is by far the almost obvious thing we have to do, mm. is pay people. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Like we didn't think about how oh. shocking humans yeah. have become zombies. We have become literally, you know, normalised to crazy selfish thinking. That's so right. So from a conservation point of view, I think the only way to do it is, yeah, a fundamental mind shift to think about how your children and your children's children are going to live on this planet. And yeah, until that happens, I, I worry a little bit. We're talking to Professor James Watson about biodiversity corridors.
I wanted to ask you, you've travelled and been in part of many um, projects in many countries, and I wonder, have you been influenced by First Nations people in those countries? Because I've started to notice a lot on the webinars and things I attend, conferences, Aboriginal people here are coming up a lot more, and they have a lot different attitude to the land, this long generational, and, and they feel part of the land. They don't actually, they are one of the species that are here, you know, they're part of it. I think there's no doubt. I think there's, you know, it's it's absolutely clear as day is that when you have Indigenous people who've been living continued occupational land. So what you see in northwestern Western Australia or Northern Territory and inland Australia, where people have continually lived on the land, there are still pretty intact ecosystems and systems that are still functioning in the way that they have been for millennia, because Indigenous people are part of the landscape and they see themselves as part of the landscape and seascapes. When people have been displaced, Indigenous people have been displaced from the landscapes, that's when we have problems with salinity, fire, disease, um, extinction, climate change. You know, it's just, it's just a, it's a no-brainer. So, you know, it's great that we're having conversations which are now more inclusive with Indigenous people, absolutely. And I think for the evidence, you know, if you want to see a bilby in the wild, you, you go to an Indigenous protected area. You know, like that's, you know, that's, you know, and that's the way kind of thing I think about it. So as they manage the land and the way that things like bilbies can thrive in, it's just simple. So the more we fund Indigenous protected areas, the more we can get behind Indigenous land management and be more respectful about their heritage, I think the better chance we have for better long-term life. Rewilding has lots of meanings, I think. And I mostly thought it was like habitat restoration so that the wildlife could restore themselves. But in Scotland, they've just said they want to be the first rewilding nation. They want to make it part of their COVID recovery. And for example, reintroducing beavers to slow down floodwaters. But I wonder how, how about bringing back wolves? And you mentioned other apex predators like that. Wouldn't they kill the livestock? I mean, how do these rewilding projects manage with farmers? I know a lot of French farmers are very upset about the wolves being brought back. <laughs> I think, look, I think it's great. I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of thinking that we have to have. Like the French farmers, this is, a, you know, so what? Yeah, a few farmers are going to lose a few sheep. Well, let's work out a system so they get compensated. But if you've got a system that have wolves in place that are functioning the way they should have, which means they've got an apex predator, it means the system's going to be far more healthy than without it. So, you know, it, it's But weird. how? Explain that. I don't really get it. I don't know about that. How does so an apex predator help the landscape, you know, or the biodiversity? So, so, okay, so what? Climate, so what, climate change. So, 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 okay, so this is so... A famous example, this is the famous example about what happens with wolves extinction in America, okay, is that they were hunted to extinction across 48 states, um, mainland states. Caribou and elk went ballistic, which basically meant that, and the way they feed, it meant that they basically destroyed entire species of trees. They, detroit, they changed entire ecosystems. The elk and the caribou were so lazy because there were no predators. They didn't even raise their heads anymore. You can walk up and touch them on the bum because they <laughs> had no fear of anything. So they just ate and ate and ate. It's a thing called a mesopredator relief. Because there's nothing eating them, they just bred and bred and bred and bred and bred. And lo and behold, what did you have? You have 
all these bovine diseases entered the system, which buggered up the agriculture. You have tick-borne diseases go everywhere, such as those terrible diseases that humans get, um, Lyme's disease and stuff go ballistic because, lo and behold, the, the deer are everywhere. And there's uh, and um and you've got an entire functional ecosystem which has changed, so that you know, so that certain birds went extinct, insects went extinct because certain trees couldn't ever grow because the the, the deer were eating them. So the entire system was out of sync. Now, all they had to do in, in, in um, Yellowstone was introduce one pack of wolves, 23 wolves, and that system is now back to normal. The, the elk and the caribou act like elk and caribou. They, <laughs> they, hide, they, they don't feed it. No, they're, they're, spending, no, they're not eating all the time. They're not breeding all the time. They're just 50% of the time looking up and seeing if there's elk. You know, like they're doing what they're meant to do, which yeah. means that things are back in sync. You know, and that means, you know, sure, lo and behold, the trees that disappeared, the elms which disappeared and all that kind of stuff are coming back now. So, you know, and, you know, and the birds that have disappeared in that part of the world are coming back. The insects are coming back. The, the diseases that the farmers had around that system um, are disappearing. Wolves attack only the sick animals, you know, first, and the sick animals are the ones which have viruses and stuff like that which pass off domesticated animals. So that's brilliant. I just think that's a brilliant story. And I think, you know, and the French farmers can go, you know, can live with it. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. All right, well, we have a French listener. She's going to be on the phone to me straight after this program. Look, as this is the the last question, this is the United Nations decade of ecosystem restoration. I didn't even know that until I started wanting to interview you. But it is a whole decade of ecosystem restoration. What would be your report card on the where is it working and what would you have to say to those who are holding back progress? Look, it's it's ambitious but it needs, um, needs funding. And I think that some are, you know, and right now there's just not enough funding going, coming from nations like um, like Australia into the, the global environment facility and stuff like that. So nations like, you know, Madagascar, Guatemala, all these very poor nations which need heavily to restore their e- ecosystems because they have the funds to do it. So that's, yeah. the, that's the sad thing. The other thing is, you know, what, what's needed to change the bend the curve for this stuff? It just needs governments to show leadership in Australia is one nation who could easily do far more in this space. They still push this idiotic line that it's jobs or the environment when it's just not. It's, you know, the environment, if we get the environment right, there will be more jobs, you know, mm-hmm. and it'll be, healthy, you know, and I think, yeah, until we can change that language, uh, I, I struggle to see how we're going to, you know, get really anything moving. But, and, you know, but Australia has a real opportunity to show leadership. I just hope they can. Super. Thank you very much, James. So that was Professor James Watson from University of Queensland. As you see, he's been involved in lots of projects. And um, thank you, James, for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. See you. Bye. Hey, we're getting wolves back in Colorado. But what does that mean? Is there really enough habitat? What do ranchers think about it? And where do you order wolves for your wolf reintroduction program? Today's Rewilding Earth podcast. the Rewilding Earth podcast. We're talking to Amy Kamarainen in Canada. She's a scientist living in a wild part of British Columbia where they recently had an extreme marine heat wave which tossed up millions of dead shellfish on Vancouver beaches. 
So welcome, Amy. Just start by telling us what it's like where you are right now. Yeah, it's a beautiful time of year here in British Columbia. It's August, so it's our it's our summer, and um, we've been having a series of of warm temperatures. We actually had another heat dome uh, pass through the area just in the last few days. So it's the peak of our summer right now. This will be a very memorable chapter in your life. It's been just a joy to be there. It's uh, just a, a rugged and beautiful and spectacular place with all the eye-catching wildlife like eagles and bears and humpback whales and occasionally orca and salmon, of course. And so it's just been a, a, a wonderful, beautiful place to be. Just to explain to the listeners what your role is, because you um, have a lot to do with the Salmon Coast. Yeah, so I'm currently serving as the executive director for the Salmon Coast Field Station, which is a small nonprofit research organization that supports independent research on basically any uh, organisms that folks want to do research on uh, in coastal British Columbia. And we're a remote off-grid facility, which makes life interesting. Explain a bit more the remote and off-grid. An hour and a half boat ride to the nearest town, really, uh, where we get our groceries and we, um, you know, have services. And so the field station itself is um, off-grid. We have our own water system, our own electricity system that's based primarily on solar and uh, micro-hydro power generation. And we have a small garden that we also try to use to support our crew of researchers who join us during the summers. So it's just a, an amazing opportunity to be intimately involved with the researchers who come to the station and help support them and get to hear about all the exciting and interesting research that people are doing. Wow. Okay. Well, look, I'd like you to set the scene for us about this shocking event. It really attracted my attention to think of they said a billion sea creatures we've just had bushfires here which we say a billion animals died in the australian bushfires so you had a billion i don't know crustaceans or you know shellfish just set the scene for us what did it look like or smell like yeah the um the shoreline in the area that we we live it was very unusual because we indeed actually are are relatively far north compared to Vancouver and some of the other places that had large die-offs, but we also were affected by it. And um, a lot of organisms in the intertidal or the space, you know, just at the edge of the shore were basically cooking in their shells. You know, when you think of taking mussels or clams or oysters home with you and, and you might cook them and steam them, uh, and and that smell that that comes with it, you could smell some of that, and you could also smell something that was a little less pleasant and um, and really unusual for us. Well, I'm wondering what the effect of taking a billion animals out of the marine ecosystem is. What would that ripple effect be happening under the seas now? Oh gosh, yeah, um, it's really hard to tell. There's uh, not enough monitoring to know uh, what the impacts will be. And of course, these scenarios or these situations are quite unprecedented. So we don't have a lot of um, historical information to, to rely on to, to know what the, the cumulative effect will be. But given that a large part of the, uh, a large number of organisms in the ecosystem did perish, it um, will inevitably have knock-on effects in other parts of the food web. Of course, 
all the different organisms that live in the, the ocean are, are intimately connected with one another in terms of um, the, the relationships they have with not only food sources, but um, the organisms uh, that we're talking about, some of the mussels and our, our organisms that, that sort of filter the, the water on the shorelines as well. They clean the water uh, near the shores of the ocean. What does that mean? The water will get algal, algae or what will happen? That's what I would anticipate is that with the, the decrease in the population size of filter feeding organisms in the intertidal zone, that, um, yep, as they filter water through, they usually take out phytoplankton and algae. And uh, those organisms are the ones that are doing a lot of photosynthesis and primary production. And mm. they also can be the ones that cause scummy looking blooms on the edges of areas. And these filter feeding organisms often keep the, keep the waters clear and filter out some of that excess algae that might occur otherwise. And what about the animals like birds feed on fish and there's a whole ecosystem. I don't know about ecosystems. Can you paint the picture of the cycle of life that is interrupted? Because this is a climate action program. People sort of say, well, stop fossil fuels. Stop. We want the cycle of life that, that is self-reinforcing, self-enhancing to resume. Yeah. And I think this is one of the interesting, especially with uh, the die-offs that occurred in the intertidal zone, it's an interesting interface between the water and the land. You know, not only do the marine organisms in that area rely on some of the food sources and some of the habitat and structures of these organisms near the shores, but also birds, um, many seabirds sea and marine birds and shorebirds rely on um, the organisms they find there, the crabs that they might, they might forage on, snails. There's also a huge number of, of other organisms that would come in and feed in that intertidal zone as well. You get yeah. everything up to bears uh, that you will often find on a low tide. You can see bears foraging in that zone and digging up crabs and clams and all kinds of things that they can find there. Bears in our area are already... Um, having a lot of pressure in terms of um, food sources. So having a significant uh, decline in some of the intertidal organisms may have an effect on them as well. Yeah. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR community radio is right here at 85, 5 a.m., so it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community radio is your love. We're talking to Amy Kamarainen in Canada. Amy, I'd like to ask you, there's a, a lot talked now about attribution science. They can much more quickly attribute these horrific weather events to the climate the impact of uh, carbon emissions. So in this scientific work that you do, I think there's no doubt that that heat dome effect was very much exacerbated by climate change. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing is that with these new approaches that um, and the advances in scientific modeling, scientists have been able to de definitively say that the events we've been seeing over the last 10 years have are certainly worse because of human-induced climate change. Um, the events we've had most recently are worse because of human-induced climate change and that 
some of them, um, we can even say that some of them would not have occurred if we didn't have um, human-induced climate change happening. And so it's really interesting that that we can now be sure about that um, connection. I well, we've got a little boy in here too. That's all right, listeners. He's just playing in a sunny garden in Canada while we're all cold in Australia. But he's just going to be in the background. Amy, let's now talk about the way forward, you know, like restoration. And mainly I want to Mama. talk about conservation and, and what can be done. And I believe there's a growing recognition that salmon fisheries are in trouble. You know, I've read quite a bit about that. And protecting them means not only protecting them from oil spills in the ocean and overfishing, but also protecting their habitat on land along the rivers. I think with salmon, they're particularly challenging um, and a particularly, you know, canary in the coal mine kind of organism. One of the interesting things that, that folks in our collaborative space have been working on is actually there's some really exciting cutting edge um, genetic techniques that can be used to um, take a small non-lethal sample of uh, tissue from a salmon and using that small tissue sample can read biomarkers for different kinds of stressors for fish. And so there's a way that scientists can, can basically process that tiny tissue sample in the lab and come away with an understanding of whether that fish has recently been exposed to different stressors like perhaps high temperatures or low oxygen levels or different kinds of diseases as well. And um, this is a really exciting advance in, in understanding um, salmon because one of the challenges of being of, of salmon is that there's there's they're such um, they're a migratory species and so they're exposed to challenges both sort of in the streams um, you know uh, uh, on land uh, in their their young phases of, of their life. Well, we've been talking um, elsewhere on this program about biodiversity corridors and. I'd like to know more about how to preserve wilderness. I mean, Pre President um, Joe Biden is talking now very much about 30% of nature by 2030. You know, it's a grabby title, but it's something that people can conceptualize, you know, a wild nature left wild or, or not only left wild, but managed as a wilderness. We know the famous, I see many pictures of salmon going upstream to spawn, but how would you protect that? I mean, on farms, you protect rivers, fencing off rivers so the cattle don't degrade the sides of the river but how would you protect that habitat you i'm still stuck with that picture of the bear trying to find some you know, something to eat along the seashore and getting skinnier and skinnier as there's less to eat i'm sure that's the same along rivers i mean they would love to have plentiful salmon to eat as well yeah <sighs> protecting the salmon at, at all their life stages one of the big issues is is having connectivity in in streams and in in rivers. Dams are a huge issue for salmon. Having obstructions to their ability to pass through these environments is is a key a key part of helping them to um, helping in their conservation. But I think also engaging local people in the protection and the engagement with their their streams and with um, their local environments, whether it be First Nations people in the communities that should have jurisdiction over over some of these waterways, or whether it's any of the, the settler communities who live near these streams. Just really important that that because this problem is so diffuse and, and mm -hmm. their salmon depend on so many streams and so many places, can there can be a some really good action from 
local people who are paying attention and protecting their local waterways. Yeah. What other breakthroughs have you had, or not just your group, but, you know, in the wider marine world? The field station I work at uh, started because some folks living in the local community noticed an issue with uh, the young juvenile salmon that were passing through that they had a large number of parasitic sea lice on them. Started monitoring that issue uh, over 20 years ago now. And in those 20 years, built up a base of scientific evidence showing the impact of parasitic sea lice on juvenile salmon in particular. And from that, we're able to provide information and, and resources to some of the local First Nations who stood up for their, you know, their rights to their salmon. And, and we're in the process right now of removing Atlantic salmon aquaculture operations from the um, from the local area, from the region oh. that, that we're working in. Well, because the sea lice grow on the um, aquaculture salmon, do they? Yeah, so it's it's um, it's sort of a complicated phenomenon where the the sea lice do naturally occur on um, on salmon on wild salmon, but in a normal place where uh, there aren't any aquaculture sites, those those sea lice would um, not survive in yeah. the the fresh water. So as the adults migrate up the fresh water, they would normally fall off and and not yeah. um, not be able to affect the young. Ah! in the next season but in spaces where there are aquaculture sites those um those sea lice have a place that they can survive and and stay sort of stay afloat so to say as um and then when the the juvenile mi- juvenile salmon migrate back past farms um on their way out to the ocean they often pick up um sea lice as they pass the farms so the sea lice are sort of deposited with the farms um, as wild fish migrate through and then they stay there. They just um, sort of psych- go through their life cycle. The, the, the parasites go through their life cycle and then are there and waiting to reinfect the, the, the young um, wow. juvenile salmon as they pass back through. So they kind of become breeding grounds for the, the parasites. Wow. Okay, well, thank you very much, Amy. <laughs> So we've been talking to Amy Kamarainen um, in British Columbia, Canada, after the great marine heat wave alerted us to your part of the world. And um, thank you very much for telling us about your work. Thank you for having me, Viv. It's great to talk with you. Talking to Amy, the connection between the marine heat wave that she had witnessed and the crude oil that Canada exports was on my mind. I wanted to know about the pipelines that is so controversial and that, so I went back to Naomi Klein, her book, This Changes Everything, had a chapter about the Hetzuk people up in British Columbia, and they live in a very remote region. They had opposed oil tankers going up that passage along the coast of northern British Columbia because they were frightened of oil spills and damage to the spawning grounds of the salmon. And so this is from Naomi Klein. It's just a marvellous description. So it gives you a little bit of background to the area where Amy is doing her research. A line of Heltsuk hereditary chiefs were waiting on the tarmac, all dressed in their full regalia, robes embroidered with eagles, salmon, 
orcas and other creatures of these seas and skies. Headdresses adorned with animal masks and long trails of white ermine fur, as well as woven cedar basket hats. They greeted the visitors with a welcome dance, noisemakers shaking in their hands and rattling from the aprons of their robes, while a line of drummers and singers backed them up. On the other side of the chain-link fence was a large crowd of demonstrators carrying anti-pipeline signs and canoe paddles. And it was young people who had led the way, turning the local school into a hub of organising. Students had worked for months in preparation for the hearings from the government. They researched the history of the pipeline and other tanker spills, including the 2010 disaster at the Kalamazoo River, and noted that Enbridge, the company responsible for that, was the same one pushing the Northern Gateway Pipeline. The teenagers were also keenly interested in the Exxon Valdez disaster since it took place in a northern landscape similar to their own. As a community built around fishing and other ocean harvesting, they were alarmed to learn about how the salmon of Prince William Sound, Sound had become sick in the years after the oil spill and how herring stocks had completely collapsed. And they're not, still not fully recovered more than two decades later. The students contemplated what such a spill would mean on their coast. And this is great, this description of what the web of life involves. Naomi Klein says, If the sockeye salmon, a keystone species, were threatened, it would have a cascade effect. Since they feed the killer whales and the white-sided dolphins whose dorsal fins regularly pierce the water's surface in nearby bays, as well as the seals and sea lions that bark and sunbathe on the rocky outcroppings. And when the fish return to the freshwater rivers and streams to spawn, they feed the eagles, the black bears, the grizzlies and the wolves, whose waste then provides the nutrients to the lichen that lines the streams and riverbanks, as well as to the great cedars and Douglas firs that tower above the temperate rainforest. It's the salmon that connect the stream to the rivers, the rivers to the sea, the sea back to the forests. Endanger the salmon and you endanger the entire ecosystem that depends on them, including the Heltzuk people whose ancient culture and modern livelihood is inseparable from this intricate web of life. After this delegation visited the Heltzuk people, and there were many other meetings, the federal court judged that First Nations people had been inadequately consulted and they overturned their approval for the pipeline. In 2015, the new Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, banned oil tanker traffic completely on that northern British Columbia coastline. In 2016, he rejected plans for the pipeline outright. So in a way, it's a victory for Blockadia, as Naomi Klein calls this, the protest movement of local people, Blockadia. But today we've received the new IPCC report, which makes it so much more urgent and so much more obvious that this kind of trade has to be tapered off and eventually stopped. Certainly, Canada should stop subsidising the fossil fuel exports that at the present they do. And now, courtesy of Democracy Now! 
Amy Goodman talks to Dr. Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh. Climate scientist, director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. He's been a longtime IPCC lead author, now joining us from Dhaka. Your response to this report, Salim? Thank you very much, Amy. <clears throat> My response is that this uh, report has actually um, ushered in what I call the new era of loss and damage from human-induced climate change in an absolutely scientifically verifiable and attributable manner. There is no question at all that what we are seeing on our TV screens across the world in terms of the wildfires, the heat, heat the dome effect in the North America, floods in China and India, are now the severity of all of these have been increased because of human-induced climate change by re enhancing the global temperature 1.2 degrees above uh, pre-industrial. And the path to keeping it below 1.5 degrees is diminishing by the hour, as Greta Thunberg said. So this is not a surprising report. It's an assessment of, as you've heard, 14,000 scientific papers, which already exist and we've known about. Uh, it brings it all together uh, and, and makes the case for urgency, I think, very, very strong. Um, the new aspect of it, I would say, has, has already been uh, alluded to by one of the lead authors, is that the science on attribution of extreme events has become a lot better. It used to be the case that these extreme weather events that we have could not be tied to human-induced climate change uh, as they are now able to be done. So the heat dome effect in North America, for example, could not have happened without the human-induced climate change taking place. The severity of the wildfires in southern Europe would not be so severe without human-induced climate change, and so on and so forth. These events are not caused by climate change, but they are becoming much, much, much more severe because of human-induced climate change having already raised global mean temperature by 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial. So in Bangladesh, where I live, we've known this for over a decade. This is all old news. None of this is new news. It happens all the time. We are a country of 170 million people living on less than 150,000 square kilometers um, on the delta of two of the world's biggest rivers, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, and also uh, susceptible to uh, major cyclones coming in from the Bay of Bengal uh, into hitting our country. So we've seen uh, just a year ago, a year and a bit ago, a super cyclone hit us called Amphan on, uh, in May of 2020. It became a super cyclone while it was in the Bay of Bengal because the sea surface temperature was two degrees above normal. Um, in past decades, super cyclones of that magnitude have actually killed hundreds of thousands of people. The good news is they don't anymore. Bangladesh has probably the best cyclone warning and evacuation system in the whole world. Three million people were evacuated and took shelter. And the death rate was in the few dozens of people, most of whom were fishermen who were out at sea and didn't get back to land in time. Three million people on land took shelter and survived. But nevertheless, the cyclone did a lot of damage. People lost their homes their crops, their livelihood, infrastructure. So even though the death rate has been brought down considerably, the, de the destruction was not able to be prevented. And there'll be more of that coming in the future. Salim al um, 
The biggest greenhouse gas emitters are China and the United States. Uh, what do these two countries have to do? These two countries are the key. The United States is still, even though China is the biggest greenhouse ga gas emitter now, the United States is still cumulatively the biggest contributor to the fact that we now have global temperature above 1.2 degrees centigrade. So both these countries are going to have to step up their game. And to me, they are key. If they can do it, everybody else will follow. They've done some. One must give credit for that. But they haven't done enough. And hopefully this report will spur them on to take even faster, more drastic action to wean themselves off fossil fuels on coal, petroleum and natural gas as quickly as possible and segue into a cleaner energy world of renewable energies like solar, wind, uh, together with storage, which is a key factor in utilizing these uh, intermittent energy sources like uh, wind and solar. Uh, with these three technologies, we should be able to wean ourselves off fossils very quickly and go into a new world based on renewable energies. The faster we do that, the better off everybody, including Americans and Chinese, will be. America and Chinese, China are also quite vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, as they just found out in the last few weeks. So they're not going to be able to uh, uh, adapt as quickly either. So the sooner they can reduce their emissions, the better. And the rest of the world will follow. They are the two key players. Can you talk about the change in media coverage because of that? Absolutely. So, uh, as I said earlier, in Bangladesh and indeed in the rest of the global south, uh, this is not news at all. We've known this for the last decade. We've been suffering. We've been uh, dealing with it as best we can uh, with the rest of the global media uh, not taking much interest, maybe a few seconds to report on a, on a flood or a drought or a, a hurricane, and that was it. Uh, now that it's happening in the rich world, in Europe and in the United States, um, it's get, getting a lot more wall-to-wall -wall television coverage. I've been watching TV all day here in Dhaka about the Greek uh, wildfires in Greece. I'm sure the Greeks never saw a wall-to-wall -wall coverage of what happened in Bangladesh when we had floods and cyclones. Uh, so that's a good thing, you know, in, in uh, everybody now realizing we're in the same boat uh, and, and uh, facing the same storm, even if we're not all in exactly the same kind of boat. Uh, but uh, one of the interesting issues here is what the rich countries can actually learn from the poorer countries like Bangladesh. I mentioned that Bangladesh has brought down the death rate of these events in a very, very significant fashion by providing early warning and evacuation for people. The number of deaths that we saw in Germany, in one of the richest countries in the world, nearly 200 Germans actually died from flash floods, would never have happened in Bangladesh. We would have evacuated them. We do evacuate everybody that's in the path of floods or in cyclones. In Germany, they weren't able to do that. So Germany could learn a lot from Bangladesh, and so could the United States, on how to deal with these impacts that they have not been used to, but we are used to doing them. As we wrap up, Salim al if you can talk about the significance of the climate summit that's taking place in Glasgow, if, in fact, it happens as an in-person event or just a virtual one because of COVID, um, but the significance of this summit. I think the uh, Glasgow summit, the COP26, is going to be perhaps the most significant COP that we've had. Uh, just a reminder that this was actually supposed to have been held last year, in December 2020, 
and it got postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic for valid reasons. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, didn't allow it to be held, so it was postponed by 12 months. But that's a very critical 12 months because climate change didn't take 12 months off. It's actually taking place, and I would say it actually crossed a threshold, which we've just seen with the IPCC 6 assessment report, that we are now living in a climate change world. And so, as I said, we are now in the era of having to deal with loss and damage from human-induced climate change. And that's going to be one of the topics that the vulnerable countries are going to bring up. Indeed, they've already brought it up in COP26 for treating it seriously, which has not been done so far. We've been talking about it for a long time. We've not been getting anywhere with it. Now it's for the rich countries to recognize it's a reality and do what they're supposed to do, which is implement what they agreed to implement in Paris, keep the global temperature below 1.5 degrees and provide $100 billion a year to the developing countries to tackle climate change. They promised but didn't deliver. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Our guests tonight were James Watson from the University of Queensland, Amy Kamarainen from the Salmon Coast Research Station in British Columbia. We had an extract from Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, and Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future, plus a small interview with Dr. Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh from Democracy Now! Thank you to all of those people and to Climate Neutral for providing us with information to think about how biodiversity corridors and land restoration is one of the great climate actions we can take. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Here's a promo for Carbon Neutral. They are describing the Yarra Yarra Biodiversity Corridor in Western Australia. The Moral and the Prindry Shires, where we predominantly have our properties, is between 90 and 95% cleared. That means that there's isolated habitat for some of the world's most endangered species. This whole southwest land division is one of only 34 international biodiversity hotspots. And nowhere else in Australia, let alone the rest of the world. Our corridor concept, we're not about buying all the farms within a certain area, but just enabling a, a sort of a trail where animals can transition through the landscape a lot more easily. Through choosing to use a biodiverse mix, instead of having a monoculture where we just plant a single species and then uh, it's almost lock the gate and walk away, we're able to replicate nature, have these multi-species to suck carbon out of the air. Biodiverse systems have inherent robustness. That provides an enormous resource from which we can develop new agricultural systems. In the last year, we've built up our um, beekeeping enterprise. We're just building that up as we go. We always knew we had some fairly significant Aboriginal heritage sites on our properties. Then we thought, well, how do we become more culturally aware about the land that we're on? Carbon Neutral's Indigenous program kicked off with a reconciliation action plan to include and participate with First Nation people. I work with another First Nations man 
there's certainly some opportunities to work with not only blackfellas but also with the wider community. It was really important to us to have local people stay here. Douglas is uh, he's a third or fourth generation farmer. You need uh, a certain number to, to run a community. I think we've hit critical mass now where if we have much more of a reduction in population out here, these communities are not sustainable. We're not going to be able to just provide you know, normal services that, that, that people require. So by bringing these systems in that, that require more people and, and better use of the land and, and more sustainable use of the land, we'll actually grow and prosper.